0: Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 through 15. Our sermon as we finish looking at the quality nature contours of our relationships together is one anothering in the house Jesus builds. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you Have you ever driven by a beautiful home, a mansion, and experienced a twinge of envy? Oh, I wish I could live in there. What's it like outside? What a beautiful house. It's happened to me, and I've been envious because I lost my mind. I already live in a stunningly wonderful home the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of God, the dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so when I'm envious for a a better or different home, I realize there's too much individualism in my heart. And I undervalue the supreme glory of the church. So, I want to compare a beautiful mansion to the church. Let's do that in two ways. Let's just look at the physical structure as well as the beautiful interior. Number one, the physical structure. What can we say about a, a mansion? A number of things. First of all, the cost. Wow, that was, must have cost millions to build that beautiful house. What was the cost of building a The house of God. It's beyond measure. It's inestimable. Because Paul told us earlier in chapter 5, verse 9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What did it cost God to place you in the eternal dwelling of the church of Jesus Christ? Jesus himself would remove the wrath of God for your sins in his body on the cross. There is a day of wrath coming. A horrible, horrible day of judgment for unbelievers. If you have any doubt, read the next chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you have any doubt. But Paul is encouraging and assuaging your conscience that Christ has willingly borne all the wrath due your sins. What a cost. So Paul is saying, as you go about relationship, start from a posture of mercy. We've heard a lot about it this morning from Rick. Start with mercy. Start with, I didn't get what I deserved. Now, what will you create as you go about and do a relationship? You'll create lots of grace, lots of mercy, lots of patience, lots of kindness. The cost. Secondly, the threat to the building. My home can be threatened by hail, uh, termites, trees falling on it. You understand that? What is the threat to the church? In the case of, of the Thessalonians, persecution started immediately as soon as Paul got to Thessalonica. He's gone. He knows there's still a threat to the physical and spiritual welfare of the church. So when you're at war, how do you treat your fellow soldiers? Aren't they your most significant assets? Your survival depends on one another. It's also true in the church. Your spiritual thriving depends on your brothers and sisters in the church. I know we know that in our heads. I'm not sure we practice it existentially because... As I said earlier, individualism runs runs really deep through the hearts of American Christians. But think of the the way Paul puts it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12 25. The members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, you all suffer. If one member is honored, you're all honored. Now, where does this kind of one-anothering, burden-bearing, praying, being vulnerable, sharing the spoils of God's word together, where does that take place? Principally in small groups, home groups, community groups. It happens at one level when you gather Sunday morning, but you can't possibly do life-on-life with the kind of care that's needed in a Sunday morning service. That's why I know that your leaders are moving toward seeing that you all do this kind of life in small groups together, Bible studies, community groups, right? Are you moving in that direction? Could you pledge right now, beloved member, you will do everything in your power to become a fellow partaker of that grace, the threat to the building. Third, the appeal to the building. Sometimes Janice and I will be driving along and we'll look at the architecture of some office building and we'll go, "Ooh, that looks like the castle of the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, so uninviting. Other places, by virtue of the way they're built, say, come in, find rest. You know, your church does that. Wittingly or unwittingly. Your church makes a statement not just the physical structure, and it's great to have flowers, and it's great to have hand sanitizer, and great to have, Do you have the, the visitor parking space, so it's really easy for visitors. A lot of churches do that. Far more important is what people experience when you're bringing your unchurched neighbors to the church. Someone finds out about you through a contact or whatever, and they come in, they walk into your church. What's their first impression? We are really, really glad you're here. We don't you might not say this, we don't expect you to get everything, but we want you to experience a family of people who are simply ravished by the love of God and can't contain that love as we seek to care for each other. So make it a goal, personal goal, that when the service ends, before you greet the normal people you like to greet, you will make a simple contact with someone you don't know well. Make that commitment. There was an elder in our church in Lynchburg, Dick Govers. You couldn't miss him because he was about 6'4 and ha- had white hair. If When the service was over and you found Dick out of your eye, you know what Dick was doing? He was doing this. He had met someone he didn't know. He was getting their name and their number because he was going to follow up with them. And Dick and Lynn Govers must have spent thousands of dollars taking visitors out to lunch after church to make them feel welcome. Literally, they were constantly doing this. What was the desire? The appeal of the building. Come in. Feel welcomed. You're important. What about the age of the building? Can you tell the difference between the lodge at the bottom of the hill from the one up here that we're in? Can you tell the difference? Yeah, this one looks a whole lot newer. Now, the church in Thessalonica was a new church, one of my favorite church plans because it had so much going for it chapter one they're doing evangelism like crazy i'll tell you in a minute how well they were loving each other but it's a new church and with that came some uh some some trials some temptations for example all the leaders are newly appointed so there might have been a temptation among the the church members to be jealous of them to disrespect them to expect them to do most of the ministry, and they might expect their leaders to do ruling and shepherding flawlessly. <laughs> no, really. When leaders make mistakes, they seem to incur the ire of folks who think somehow that they're perfect. And I can tell you, these leaders know they're not perfect. When I was working with them before Rick got here on the care committee of presbytery, I constantly heard, please tell us where we've sinned and erred. They knew they weren't beyond reproach. They wanted to know. That level of humility drew me into their hearts, which is one of the reasons it was so easy to say, oh, I'd love to come on this retreat. So this is why Paul writes in verse 12, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's a hard text for your elders to preach, but I can do it coming in. (laughs) Now I want you to think about this. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. What's a super tangible way for you to do that other than, thank you for serving us. Thank you for caring for us. Maybe we can have you over for a meal. Maybe we can watch your kids so you and your wife can go out. There are some tangible ways you can do that. Think, how can I esteem highly and love our leaders and Rick and his wife? But let me suggest two extremely practical ways. Number one, if you're a Christian with your salvation gift package of grace came spiritual gifts. And this church is only as healthy and vital as each one of you is using your spiritual gift. The body is suffering to any extent. Those of you who have gifts aren't using them. You have a gift. It should be used for the edification of the body. Body. Secondly, Twice already in the epistle, Paul has encouraged the entire church to encourage one another. At the end of chapter 4, he talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus, assuring the the believers there that those who've already died aren't going to miss out because Jesus hasn't already come. He ends that section by saying, Therefore, encourage one another with these words, the passage right before ours. Uh, Paul talks about the day of the Lord, the second coming. He's got more to say about it. He concludes that, that paragraph with, encourage one another with these things. I think one of the things Paul is doing, is he's saying a tangible, concrete way you can encourage your leaders, you can bless your leaders, is by being encouragers yourselves. You don't need the spiritual gift of encouragement to simply ask the Holy Spirit to fill your heart with encouragement to other people. And that's this wonderful Greek word, para kaleo, to call and para alongside. Encouragement is just being called alongside. You're just there maybe just to listen, to give of your resources, to just be with that person, to remind them of what what scripture says, to weep with them, to laugh with them, whatever it is. One of the greatest gifts you can give your leaders is you, not just the leaders, intentionally seeking to encourage one another. I think that's one of the things Paul is saying. So, that's the, I'm sorry, I have lost my place, forgive me. No, that's, that's good. That's the exterior, the beautiful exterior. That's some things we could say about the building, corresponding to the church. Shall we walk inside to the beautiful interior? Let's go inside this stunning Mansion called the Church of Jesus Christ. It's your house. What do you see? Treasures. <coughs> Paintings. Beautiful Persian carpets. We have some of those. Sculptures. Maybe an exotic plant. Um, come to our house. We'll show you our cherry corner cupboard. We just love our solid cherry corner cupboard. We love wood furniture. You see treasures. Treasures. They're your fellow believers. To whom do they belong? These treasures belong to Jesus. He suffered unimaginable torments of body and soul to make them his. And it raises this question. Now that you're in the interior of the mansion and you see these treasures, now that you've joined the church and you're getting to know these people, the Lord's trophies of his grace, how do I care for them? How do I protect them? How do I nurture them? How do I preserve their beauty? How do I appreciate them? This text answers that question with at least four things, four graces Jesus gives you that preserve and protect and keep beautiful the treasures inside the mansion. Here they are. Number one, Peace, Paul writes in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. And just to harken back to my last point, what is one way you can highly esteem your leaders and love? Make sure you live at peace with each other. The peacekeeping doesn't fall just to the elders, it falls to all of you, Paul says. Be at peace among yourselves. Why does he need to tell them and us to work at being at peace with each other? Because relationships are messy. They're hard. We hurt each other. We sin against each other. We have potential to do harm to one another. As long as there's still sin in our hearts and there is until the day we die, we have potential to contribute to relational breakdown. So let's do a little bit of, rev- of review from where we've come through the weekend. I'm just going to point out, I'm going to walk you into a side room here in the mansion. It's called the Peace Room, and it's sort of Jeffersonian. It's got five sides. Didn't Thomas Jefferson build things with five sides? Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. Honey, help me. We live a mile, as a crow flies, from Thomas Jefferson's summer home called uh, Poplar Forest. It's a mile from our home, and so I should know this thing. I think it's five-sided, irrespective. This room is five-sided, so let's just review very quickly five fundamentals that are critical to healthy relationships. Number one, remember, our relationships reflect the unity of God himself. There is only one place on earth making visible the invisible peace and love and mutual commitment to the other's welfare of the invisible Godhead. That's the church. That's what's at stake what more critical reason do you need to live at peace with each other than we are mirroring the peace God has in himself as the triune God? Secondly, we're all broken in some way from our relationships. You've been sinned against. You've sinned against others. And so the more you know the pain of being sinned against, the more readily you can be sympathetic with others, sympathetic towards others. So are you aware of the three big idols that tend to chip away at the health of your relationships? Idol number one, the need to be in control. Let me just say the obvious. People don't want to be controlled by you. Number two, are you aware of the idol to be liked, the craving approval? And thirdly, the need to be right, to be competent to be a know-it-all. These are the three big idols and everyone in the room has one of those principally in their hearts, at least one. And unless these idols are kept in check and mortified, they're going to detract from the working of your relationships. Number three, third side of this room we call peace. Relationships work best on humility. Years ago, Someone gave me a lawnmower, a push lawnmower, and it's the kind that the, the, the gasoline you have to mix with an oil. Like, I don't, why did somebody invent that? Most gasolines just work on gas. This one, you had to mix oil in it. And I ran out of that. I'm like, I don't know where to buy this, so I'm too lazy to go get it. Do you think I could get away with just putting gas alone in this, in this motor? Do you think I could get away with it? She doesn't think so. I was so tempted. I gotta get my grass cut we are tempted to do relationships with love and not adding in the humility. They'll never work that way. So how does humility affect your relationship? You start your view of the relationship not with what you want, but with, with what you deserve, wh- not with what you deserve or want, but what, but with what you should have gotten from God, wrath. That will create in you a disposition, fundamentally, of seeing yourself as a debtor. So I'm thinking of Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone but love. Given the debt Jesus paid for me, it is now my privilege and pleasure and responsibility to mirror that sense of deadness by just saying, all I owe you is love. I'm not going to demand anything from you. I owe you love. I owe you love. It's the servant. You tie the apron around your waist and you go hug a Presbyterian (laughs) and you put your eyes on that other person's needs. I owe them love. I owe them love. And we'll see in a minute. Love is always asking certain questions. So if you're wondering, I don't, know, I don't know where I can get that kind of humble love going in my heart, here's a promise. If you find yourself running into the gentle, humble heart of Jesus, finding your rest in the heart of Jesus, experiencing the love of Jesus for you, and one of the reasons we confess our sins is those who are forgiven much love much. So be ruthlessly transparent with Jesus about your sins. Experience his grace, and then you have grace and love to give away. You can't give away what you don't have. Knowing the love of Jesus for you in in proportion to what you deserved will propel you to see yourself as a debtor giving other people love. Number four, we're just doing a quick review of of the contours of how we care for each other. Other Other-centeredness conquers self-centeredness. We tend to view others in uh, sort of one of two ways. We either view them as you're there to meet my needs and my agenda, or I'm here to serve you and and to promote your agenda. We're either other-centered or self-centered, just to put it in terms of extremes. Now, what's one way you can tell which of those modes you're operating out of, right? Is the relationship about you, or is it a relationship about me? One way you can tell where you're operating is... What do you like when you don't get your own way? What do you like when you don't get what you want? Do you withdraw? Do you retaliate? Do you throw a hissy fit? Do you start to scheme and plan and go into control mode? (laughs) So wrestle with that. And here's the fifth. We're not always aware of the impact we have on others. We, We tried to look at this yesterday. How do others experience you? Here's one thing you need to know about yourself. You are most dangerous when you're absolutely convinced you're right. You tend to lose sight of the gentleness of the relationship when you're absolutely certain you're right. You've seen this in, in your life, right? Someone that knows the right and they become vehement. They're unaware of the impact of their staunch rightness on the other person. So what do you need to do? Get out your ruler. Get out your golden ruler. And stop and think, okay, I I know I'm right. That's fine. Cool down. Now, I want to rule. I want to get out my ruler, and I want to make sure I treat the other person the same way I want to be treated when they're absolutely certain they're in the right. Gentleness, patience, kindness, listening, slow down. We'll eventually get to my position. If you're certain you're right, and you may not be, open-mindedness. Okay. Next grace Jesus gives you for caring for these precious treasures in the mansion and that is the grace of preserving. So you wonder, how do I clean the chandelier? How do I clean a painting? How do I clean uh, a lovely Persian carpet? They're not all clean the same way, correct? And so people with different needs and burdens in the church aren't ministered to in exactly the same way. What have we seen everyone needs? Everyone needs encouragement. But then Paul writes in verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So you have this portrait of individualized ministry where you're being attentive and attuned to where this person is, where they're falling down, what do they need. You're being attentive to that, and you're delivering the ministry that meets the need. So he gives you these three case studies. Case study one, the idol, what are they doing? They're neglecting their duties. Probably in Thessalonica because they think Jesus is coming on Monday, therefore they're not going to work. Well, there's this misunderstanding about the second coming. What do the idol need? They need admonishing. Hey, buddy, set your alarm. Get up, go to work. Whether Jesus is coming Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or 2,000 years from now, you need to go to work. They need admonishing. They need correction. That's what's good for them, and it's what's good for everyone else because aren't they hurting the community by not living according to sound doctrine? They need admonishing. Come alongside them. Counsel them for a better way to live. Case study two, the faint-hearted. Literally, the word in Greek is little-souled. So the faint-hearted don't have the hope of glory inflating their souls. A lot of us can get this way. I can get faint-hearted. I can feel faint-hearted. My sense of hope, my sense of the love of God for me, my sense of glory, my ultimate sense of what's really important is small, it's faint. Well, does the the faint-hearted need it admonishing? No, they're already frail and fragile. They need encouragement. They need a good word. They need to be reminded of what is true. They need to to be consoled that their their loved ones are died, They're still with Jesus. The persecution is hard. We're going to endure this. They need encouragement. Third case study is the weak. What do they need? A slap in the face? No. They need help. These are people with real physical or spiritual temptations. And the word picture here is to keep yourself opposite that person. Okay, what does my brother need? He's weak. It might be a ride to the doctor's office. It might be two hours of babysitting. It might be a meal. It might be, how you doing with sexual temptation this week? A phone call. So here's what's beautiful. Beautiful. Strength in the church is born out of admitting weakness. Now, that's counterintuitive in our culture. But this church gets stronger to the degree we can be vulnerable and transparent about our weakness. Because when weakness is admitted, that's where grace wants to run in. And I know myself to be just as weak as you are. I could be tempted by any sin. Nothing's beyond me. I would ruin my life, but not for the grace of God. Therefore, admitting weakness frees us to be real, and it gets grace flowing. Third grace Jesus gives for the preserving and protecting of these precious treasures is patience. Verse 14 Be patient with all men. Why are we patient with each other? Because we're slow to change. We're slow to get it. We're often the last person to see our blind spots. What's the biblical precedent for that? Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? This is why we need patience with each other, and we forget how patient God is with us. That's one of the beauties of confessing our sins. Doing a review. Oh my goodness. God, if you were just with me, as Psalm 130 said, who could stand? Patience, patience. And and impatience, doesn't it tend to be born out of a sense of superiority? Why don't you get your act together? I have my act together. What does a sense of superiority do to the relationship? Man, it really puts it on very uneven ground. It makes it very unstable. I think we saw yesterday from Philippians 2 that the ground at the cross is very level. Everyone needs Jesus the same. Everyone will bow the knee before the Lord Jesus. Everyone confesses him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And fourth, grace, protection. And this is verse 15. Love is protective. It seeks to to protect the person and the relationship. Of course, never at the expense of covering up sin. That doesn't do anybody any good. We're not covering up sin. We're not advocating that. We're protecting the welfare of the relationship, and we're protecting ourselves from our instinct, which is what? You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You did this to me, I'll get you back. It's the saying that became popular in, what, the 70s? Don't get mad, get even. That's from the pit of hell. That's the doctrine of demons. Don't get mad, get even. Paul says, verse 15, don't repay evil for evil. Translated, the only people you should try to get even with are those who help you. Get even with them, (laughs) help them in response. So love says, I want what's best for you. I want you protected from what brings harm to you, physically or spiritually. That's why it's a loving thing to admonish the unruly. It's not good for them. To help the weak. It's not good to stay in that weak position to encourage the faint-hearted. That's the thing that they need. And this is why Paul gives what I would call a functional definition of love. Always seek to do good to all to each other and all men. That's what love is. It seeks to do good. So the loving thing to do is to start your day with what? Prayer. Lord, if left to myself, my sin will ruin my marriage. If left to myself, my sin, my pettiness, my demandingness, my pride will be a serious threat to all my relationships. Lord, keep me from ruining my relationships. That's the prayer of a humble heart and the prayer of love. I'm the greatest threat to the welfare of my relationships. Until you believe that, you are a threat to your relationships. Is that a hard word? Yeah, but it's my job to tell you hard things. It's also good for you. It's the loving thing for me to do. You need to know that. I need to know that. Why has Janice suffered in our relationship? The lack of me offering that prayer. Keep my sin, Lord, from hurting my relationship with my wife. So love asks questions. What do you need right now? what is best for you that will help conform you to the image of Christ love it. always has a vision for the other person's life greater than their own the vision is what will make you like Jesus or you could put it this way what truly promotes your their greatest glory and wait isn't that the question Jesus asked his father about his enemies What will promote their greatest glory? And the decision was, go to earth and die for them. That's the supreme act of love. How do you know the love of God? When we were his enemies, Christ died for us. When we were helpless, when we were sinners, God gave his son for us. I'll close with this illustration. Some of you have uh, mentioned through th- throughout the weekend that my middle son, Luke, is a photojournalist. He used to take pictures for media outlets. The thing that launched his career was an internship, several internships he was given with the New York Times in Washington, D.C. So he covered the White House. He covered Capitol Hill. Uh, he was an air, on Air Force One at least a dozen times. His last trip one time, the president called him up to a little over office in Air Force One as it was taking off to take his picture, President Obama. Anyway, uh, for a photojournalist, the cat's meow is having your picture above the fold on the New York Times. There's nothing better than that. Your picture above the fold New York Times. That's like winning the Super Bowl, okay? If you're an athlete. So I'd get a text from Luke. Frontin, F R O N T N. Frontin, that means dad go to Starbucks and buy the paper. I'm above the fold. I wouldn't know. I don't get the New York I don't get the New York Times. I'd only know if he told me. <laughs> Proud Papa. <laughs> <laughs> I go in, there's the newsstand. New York Times, photo credit, Luke Sherrett. Picture above the fold. I would take it to the counter and lay it down. (laughs) And just loud enough for everyone in Starbucks to hear, I'd say, my son did that. (laughs) (laughs) This mansion, filled with treasures, the Father is declaring for all the universe to hear. My Son did that. My Son from all eternity will that they would know Him, my son, sent his spirit to them to give them new hearts. My son brought them under conviction. My son opened their eyes to see the glory of his cross. My son lived perfectly, righteously under the law of God for 33 years. And then my son died the death their sins deserved on the cross. And my son rose from the dead for them, guaranteeing they would have life everlasting and have resurrected bodies. My son ever lives to pray for them. Oh, those trophies of God's grace... My son did that. That is the pleasure your father has in you and his son and in his church. Let's relish it. Let me pray for you. These dear saints, Lord Jesus, are trophies of your grace. Look what you've done for them and you continue to do for them, and you will do for them till they are with you in glory. Our Father, we rejoice in what your Son has done, how you boast over the work of your Son. You delight in it. May we delight in your Son the same way. And delight in one another as treasures of this King. This is our prayer, our hope, our expectation for this beloved church, CRCP. Oh, lavish Grace upon grace upon it. For Jesus' sake, amen.